Amen. So go ahead and get your Bibles and open them to the Gospel of John this morning. We'll be concluding our It Is Finished series with the resurrection of Jesus Christ found in John chapter 20 today. And this is a time of joyous celebration for us as we look at what Christ has accomplished for us on the cross and through his resurrection. If you don't have a Bible with us this morning, that's, that's fine. All of the verses that we're gonna talk about this morning will be right here on the screen behind me. So you can just read up there and follow along with us. As I said, we'll be in John chapter 20 this morning. And this passage is, is all about the resurrection of Jesus, okay? So there's a couple of things that we're gonna look at this morning, a couple of things that we're gonna be confronted with as we study this passage of scripture together. The first thing is we're gonna be confronted with evidence of Jesus's resurrection. And so I wanna make sure that we see that in this text. We're also gonna spend a little bit of time being confronted by eyewitness accounts that Jesus Christ truly was uh, brought back to life. He walked around and he talked with people and people were able to see him with their eyes and people were able to feel them with their hands and, and, and he really was resurrected. So we're gonna be confronted with eyewitness accounts and then ultimately this morning we're going to be confronted with a question that every single one of us in this room is going to have to answer at some point. And that question has to do with what you believe about Jesus Christ. And so that's where we're heading this morning. That's where John is taking us. John wants to conclude all of this in chapter 20 with that question of, do you believe? Do you believe that Jesus is who he says he is? Do you believe that Jesus is the Christ? Do you believe that he lived a perfect and sinless life? Do you believe that he went and died on the cross for, for you and for me? And do you believe that he was brought back to life securing for all of us resurrection power and eternal life with God the Father one day? And so that's what John chapter 20 is all about. That's everything that we're gonna look at this morning. And so I invite you to pray with me real fast again before we jump into this text and look at it together this morning. Let's go to God in prayer. Father, we thank you again for all that you've done on our behalf, God. We recognize that this morning, this morning would not be a time of celebration if everything ended on Friday. But God, we recognize that your goodness and your mercy and your grace towards us and your love for us, God, secured for us forgiveness of sins and resurrection power because of the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross and his resurrection. So this morning, as we look at this passage of scripture, God, I pray that you'd help it to come alive for us. God, I pray that we would, we would feel the emotion of this passage. God, I pray that we would also understand the truth that we find in it, that Jesus is the son of God, that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, and that in him and him alone, we can have eternal life. And we pray all of this this morning in Christ's wonderful name. Amen. All right, this morning, as I said, we'll be in John chapter 20, and I want us to start this morning looking at the first two verses of John chapter 20, because the first two verses really set up for us the context of this whole story. So before we're confronted with any anything this morning, we actually uh, have to kind of put ourselves in the shoes of Mary Magdalene and the disciples and really experience what they're feeling this early Sunday morning. So if you would read with me the first two verses of John chapter 20, starting in verse one, it says, now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. 
So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb and we do not know where they've laid him. So for context, for our purpose in understanding this story, remember what happened just prior to this was on Friday afternoon, Jesus was crucified. The Bible tells us that he's now died and he's taking off the cross and he's laid in the tomb. And the Bible tells us that two guys help prepare his body for burial. Those guys' names are Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus, right? And so the Bible tells us that they become disciples of Jesus, but both of them kind of secret disciples. And so they are the ones involved with removing Christ from the cross, wrapping his body in the cloth and in the grave clothes, preparing the spices, placing him in the tomb and leaving him there. And so it's relatively quiet on Saturday. That's the Sabbath. And that's really the whole reason why they rushed getting Jesus Jesus off the cross and into the tomb, right? They had to have him in the grave by sundown Friday night because that's when the Sabbath would begin. And so we see that occurring right before this. And so Mary, in verse one, she's going to the tomb early on the first day of the week, not to find a resurrected Christ. She's going to the tomb early on the first day of the week to take more spices to the gravesite and to the tomb and to take care of Jesus's body the way that they wish they could have before, right? That was such a, such a, a time of, of rushed uh, process that, that she wants to go early the first day of the week. The Sabbath is now passed. Now she can go and she can take care of Jesus's body the way that they intended to. So that's why she's headed to the tomb. So when she shows up at the tomb, what she finds is it empty. And I want you to put yourself in Mary's position for just a second, because for us, we look back on this with hindsight, right? And, and we look back on it with joy and with celebration, because we know what the empty tomb means. But for Mary, Mary doesn't know what the empty tomb means. Mary just sees the tomb empty and realizes something had to have happened to the body of Christ. She doesn't know what that is, so she does the only thing that she knows to do in this moment. She takes off running, and she goes and finds Simon Peter and John, all right? I love that John refers to himself as the one whom Jesus loved, right? A little humility, but he leaves his name out and, uh, uh, and all that good stuff. But he's, she's talking about Simon Peter and John. So we don't know where Jesus's body is. And like I said, it's easy for us to look at this through the lens of hindsight, right? For most of us, we've been walking around all weekend saying Friday is good because what? Sunday is coming, right? But for Mary and the disciples, all they have is Friday. They don't have Sunday yet. All they have in context of this story is Friday, they watched with their own eyes as Jesus, who claimed to be the Christ, who claimed to be God himself, was crucified and killed. And he died. And they watched his lifeless body be taken off the cross. And they watched it placed in the tomb. And they were, they were around on the Sabbath on Saturday while it laid in there. And so put yourself in their position for a second. Like, like Mary is responding the only way that, that she would know to respond. For her at this moment, this is not cause for celebration. This is cause for panic. This is cause for hopelessness. Not only did he die, not only did we place him in this tomb, but now his body is missing. 
I mean, think about that for a moment. Put, your, put yourself in her place. You know what that would feel like. You've showed up early. All you want to do is go in and take care of Jesus's body because he means so much to you. This is a person that you care a great deal about. Mary has spent many years with Christ, just like the disciples. And so this was a meaningful time for her. And she shows up and the body of Jesus Christ is missing. So she goes and grabs John and Peter and tells them that we don't know where Jesus is at. And so we pick up the story starting in verse three. So we're gonna read verse three through 10 here. Starting in verse three. So Peter went out with the other disciple and they were going towards the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. All right, I'm gonna stop right here. Remember, John is writing this gospel, all right? So John wants you to know many things in this gospel about Jesus. He also wants you to know that he's faster than Peter, all right? And so he just adds those little details in there just so that, just show that it's recorded, right? And so Peter now for all eternity is gonna know that he lost this foot race, all right? Look at verse five. It says, and John, stooping in to look, saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came following him and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloths lying there and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in the place by itself. Then the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went in and saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. So remember, Mary finds the tomb empty. She races to tell John and Peter. John and Peter literally run to the tomb. When they get there, John stops at the entrance and peers in and confirms Mary's story, right? The tomb is in fact empty. There is no body in there. And I love the scriptures because we get to see the disciples' personalities, don't we? Like Peter shows up and you can imagine John is kind of just peering in and Peter, he, he may have got to the tomb second, but he was going inside it first, right? And so I can imagine he just ducks under John's arms and he just goes into the tomb to confirm with his own eyes that in fact the tomb is empty. There is no body, but what do they find there? They find grave clothes and they find a cloth, a face cloth that's been very neatly folded and placed in the, the spot that Jesus had been laying prior to this. And this is significant for us because in this moment, the disciples are confronted with evidence of resurrection. They're confronted with evidence of resurrection as are we. Now we, we haven't put it all together yet, right? That's what it says in verse nine. For as yet they did not understand the scriptures that he must rise from the dead. But, but the wheels are beginning to turn. As, as John peers in and Peter peers in, they, they see the grave clothes. And, and you can imagine in their minds that they're starting to maybe piece some of this together. Maybe some of the sayings of Jesus are starting to make more sense, right? Like what he said in John chapter 10 when he says, No one takes my life from me, but I lay it down. Why? So that I might raise it up again. Also, we see later in Scripture that, that Jesus, Jesus references him, himself as the temple. And he says, in three days, the temple will be, will be destroyed and, and rebuilt again. And so you can only imagine that maybe the disciples, upon finding these grave clothes and being confronted with this evidence, are beginning to piece together this puzzle, right? 
Now, and now as far as a historical perspective, no one disputes the fact that Jesus is a real person. Nobody disputes the fact that Jesus of Nazareth was crucified on a cross. In fact, nobody disputes the fact that he was placed in a tomb and that tomb was found empty. But if that's all we have, that's not much evidence, is it? And so the disciples are confronted with this evidence and the question that the reader, which is us, as we study through this is left with, is where is the body of Christ? We've got some evidence still here, but we're still missing the body. So, so what happened to the body? Well, as you can imagine, lots of people begin to speculate. In fact, the scriptures tell us in Matthew chapter 28, verses 11 through 15, that the Jewish leadership, when they find out that the tomb is empty, they go to the Roman guards that were guarding it, and the Bible tells us that they offer them a great sum of money. Now, why are they offering them a great sum of money? Because they want to keep this under wraps, right? Like, imagine this for a second. You went to great lengths to crucify Jesus Christ. And you went to great lengths to make sure his body stayed in the tomb, right? In fact, we see that in Matthew chapter 27. These same Jewish leaders, they go to them on Saturday and say, hey, would you, would you seal the tomb and post a guard? Because we wanna make sure that that body stays in there. Because if that tomb's empty and Jesus walks out of there, what does that mean for them? It means that he was who he says he was. It means that he was, in fact, the Messiah, that he was God, and they would have to come to terms with the fact that you crucified God. And so they're confronted with evidence of resurrection here. We know that it wasn't the Jewish authorities that moved the body, right? They've gone to great lengths to make sure it stays there. They've even gone to great lengths to make sure that the cover-up story is there. They're, they're paying people off. Anybody in here into conspiracy theories? Don't raise your hand. Well, the government will find out that you raise your hand. Don't do that. All right. So this is like one of the first great conspiracy theories of all time, right? Like, like where is the body of Christ? And so they start giving out lump sums of money to people to say, like, when you're asked, tell them that the disciples came and stole it. Make sure that, that that's the story they get, which we also know is very improbable, right? Peter and, and John, they're showing up to the tomb saying, that they don't know where the body of Jesus is and how in the world would they have taken it? I started thinking about that this week in preparation for this sermon. One of the last times we saw Peter was a couple of weeks ago, right? When the, when the Roman soldiers show up to the Garden of Gethsemane to arrest Christ. And you guys know Peter's fighting skills, right? They're not high, all right? Like they're way down here. Uh, he tries to attack somebody, the best he can do is he hits the guy's ear, right? That's what we saw in scripture. So, so you mean to tell me that the best thing that you can come up with in this story is that the body was taken by the disciples. So you had the tomb sealed, you had guards posted outside of it, and in the middle of the night, a group of men who don't know how to fight and are primarily fishermen and bad fishermen at that show up and overthrow the Roman guards and steal the body of Jesus? It's not very probable either. So then the only other explanation we have would be grave robbers, right? But if grave robbers came into the tomb and they went through all the work to remove the stone, then why would they leave the only things of value inside the tomb? Let me think about this for a second. A corpse has no 
value. The things that had value inside the tomb were the cloths that his body was wrapped in, the, the, the incense, the myrrh, all the, all the things inside to make it smell a little better. Those would have been the things that grave robbers would have taken. The scripture tells us that those are the things that are left. It's all the incense there and the grave clothes and the face covering. And so the disciples in this moment, when they reach there, they're, they're confronted with evidence of resurrection because there's no other logical explanation for where the body of Jesus went. But as we've already said, an empty grave, an empty grave isn't really evidence enough. That leaves a lot of speculation, right? And so that's why John makes sure to add in John chapter 20, these eyewitness accounts. So this is the second thing that we're confronted with. We're confronted with evidence of resurrection and of an empty tomb. And then we're confronted with eyewitness accounts. And this is powerful that Jesus shows up to people and they're able to see him with their own eyes. They're able to touch him with their hands and they know it's really him. So start reading with me in John chapter 20, starting in verse 11. It says, but Mary stood weeping outside the tomb and as she wept, she stooped in to the tomb and she saw two angels in white sitting there where the body of Jesus had lain, one on the head and one at the feet. They said to her, woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, they have taken away my Lord and I do not know where they have laid him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. So Jesus said to her, woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you've laid him and I will take him away. So let's stop here for just a second and talk about this. So we see that Mary is outside the tomb. She went and got John and she went and got Peter. They raced to the tomb. They've peered inside, the Bible says. The wheels begin to start kind of clicking for them. And then it says that they go back to their homes. So Mary shows back up again to the tomb. It's what the Bible describes for her. So she's back and it says that she's weeping outside the tomb because she still thinks that Jesus is missing. She's in this moment of agony, right? This moment of hopelessness. And so she is weeping as she peers in to the empty tomb and then she sees two angels. The Bible tells us in white and they ask her why she's weeping and she tells them because she's missing her Lord, his body, right? And so then it says to us in verse 14 that she turned around and saw Jesus standing there but did not know that it was Jesus. Now you might think to yourself, how in the world could Mary who spent this much time with Christ not know that this was Jesus as he's standing there? I want you to put yourself in her shoes for just a second again. Most of us in this room at some point in our life we've experienced loss. We've experienced death. And with death, we've experienced grief. And so Mary, in this moment, I'm convinced doesn't recognize Jesus because she's not looking for Jesus, a living Jesus, that is. She's still looking for a body. And so the guy standing behind her couldn't possibly be the Christ because that guy is, is alive. And so we see in this interaction that Jesus begins to ask her, why are you weeping? And she tells him that she's, again, missing the body of Christ. And then in verse 16, it says that Jesus said to her, Mary. And she turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. 
And Jesus said to her, do not cling to me, for I've not yet ascended to the Father, but go to my brothers and say to them, I'm ascending to my Father and your Father and to my God and your God. And Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he had said these things to her. So in verse 16, we say, we see that when Jesus uses Mary's name, everything becomes clear to her. And she recognizes that this person standing in front of her that she thought was the gardener a second ago is actually Christ and he's alive. Could you imagine this moment for Mary? You see, for us, again, we have the, we have the opportunity to look back through hindsight for her. We, we miss the, the joy of this occasion because we didn't experience the agony and the hopelessness quite like she did, Right? And so when Jesus says Mary, she recognizes that this is Christ. And so the Bible says that she goes and announces to the disciples, I have seen the Lord. Now I want you to make sure that you catch that because what she doesn't say is I found his body. What Mary says is I have seen the Lord. Guys, I've seen him with my own eyes. I've touched him. Remember, how do we know that she touched him? Because she clings to him. She throws him in a big hug. She wraps her arms around Jesus and she hugs his physical body. And so she races off to tell the other disciples that I've seen Jesus with my own eyes and I've touched him with my own hands. And you guys aren't gonna believe this, but he's alive. So we pick up in verse 19 of the same chapter. Jesus then appears to the disciples. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, peace be with you. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. So he's appeared to Mary. Mary goes and gives the report. And, and the disciples hear what she's saying, right? But you can imagine like the situation that they're in, they're probably thinking like, I, I'm gonna need to see this for myself before I begin to believe. And we know that they're kind of piecing it together, but they don't fully understand this because they're still behind locked doors, the Bible says, for fear of the Jews. Listen, if you fully understood that Jesus was the Messiah and that they crucified him and killed him and he brought himself back to life, you weren't afraid of anyone. You're not behind any locked doors, but we see that what's going on inside the disciples is a little bit of uncertainty. They're still skeptical of the fact that Jesus truly is alive. And then Jesus shows up in front of them. I love this about Christ, that he, he shows up in front of all the disciples, minus Thomas and minus Judas. And so they're all in one room together and the Bible says that they see him with their eyes and that he shows them his hands and his scars and his side. And so they're able to see him with his eyes and, and touch him with their hands too. So now we've got eyewitness account of Mary Magdalene and we've got all the disciples. The Bible actually goes on to tell us in the other gospels that over 500 people see the risen savior. But he also appears to one more guy in John chapter 20. And I love that, that John adds this here. In John chapter 20, starting in verse 26, remember Thomas was one of the disciples. He wasn't there. And Thomas is struggling. 
And the Bible tells us in chapter 26, it says, eight days later. Oh, goodness. By the way, anybody here know what FOMO is? You guys ever heard of that? Fear of missing out, right? Could you imagine Thomas, by the way? Like everybody's been walking around for eight days. For over a week, everybody's walking around going, yeah, I saw Jesus up in that, up in that room. I, I met him on the road to Emmaus. Mary saw him at the, at the temple and Thomas is going, are you kidding me? Everyone here has seen Jesus resurrected and not me. So the Bible tells us that he's struggling. And he actually says, listen, unless I can see him with my eyes and I can touch his scars, I will never believe. And so eight days later, the Bible says that Jesus shows up. And I love how specific, specific Christ is for all of us. He knows what Thomas needs in this moment. And so it says he shows up. It says his disciples were again inside and Thomas was with them, although the doors were locked and Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, put your finger here and see my hands and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. See, Jesus' intent here was so that Thomas would believe he wants all of us to believe this story. Why? Because it's true. That's John's intent in this gospel as well. That the whole purpose for all this is so that you might believe that Jesus is the Son of God. And that by believing in him that you might have life. This whole purpose was so that you could have forgiveness of your sins and eternal life. And Jesus, Jesus wants everybody to know that. And he wants Thomas to know it. And I love, how, I love how gentle and patient our Savior is with us. Even those of us that are skeptical. Maybe that's your story. Maybe you're in this room this morning. And you're like, listen, I, I don't know what I believe about all this stuff. I've got a lot of questions. Listen, Jesus isn't afraid of your questions. Maybe you've got some doubts about whether or not he truly is the Messiah. I can assure you of this, that Jesus is not afraid of your doubts. Jesus Christ's heart for you and for every single person in this room is that you would come to a place of saving faith, that you'd come to a place of belief and not disbelief. Why? So that you could have forgiveness of your sins and eternal life with him forever. It's a whole purpose for why he came. We see that in John's heart. The last thing we're confronted with in this text, in this chapter, is a decision. A decision to be made. Look at verses 30 and 31. It says, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. That's John's whole intent for writing this gospel. He wants you to come to a place of belief that Jesus is who he says he is and that in Christ and Christ alone, you can have eternal life and forgiveness of sins. I'm gonna ask you all around the room at this point in the service, if you would all just bow your heads and close your eyes, everybody right where you're at. I'd like for us to conclude this way with this reminder that John, like Jesus, is so convinced and so confident that Jesus is the Messiah that he invites you to come and see for yourself. 
and he invites you to come and make a decision for yourself. And the question that he asks is, do you believe that Jesus is the son of God? Do you believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah? Do you believe that he died on the cross in your place? Do you believe that he was placed in the tomb? Do you believe that he was raised back to life? That's the question that you have to wrestle with. It's a question that confronts every single person. It's a decision that has to be made and it has to be made by each individual person. I can't make it for you, I wish I could. Only you can make this decision for yourself and that is what is offered to you. It's an opportunity to respond to that question. Do you believe? For some of you in this room this morning, you would say that you know without a doubt that Jesus Christ is your Lord and Savior. And for that, I celebrate with you that you have forgiveness of your sins and you have eternal life secured for you. But there may be some in this room, as I said, that don't have that assurance. You don't know where you stand with Christ. Maybe you don't even know what all of this means here. I'm, I'm, I'm gonna try to help explain it to you this morning. The Bible tells us in Romans chapter 10, verse nine, that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, that you'll be saved. That's what all this is about. It's about recognition that you're a sinner in a hopeless situation and you can never save yourself and that Jesus Christ is your only way to salvation. If you believe that and you confess it, the Bible says that you will receive salvation, that you'll be reborn. So I wanna offer you that opportunity here this morning. I'm gonna lead you in a simple prayer right where you are. If you wanna place your faith in Jesus Christ this morning, then I invite you to repeat this prayer after me. Nothing magical about these words. It's about your heart and your confession to Christ. Say, dear Lord Jesus, I know that I'm a sinner and I ask for your forgiveness. I believe you died for my sins and rose from the dead. I turn from my sins and invite you to come into my heart and life. I want to trust and follow you as my Lord and Savior. So if you prayed that prayer with me this morning, I've got great news for you, the best news of all. The Bible says that you have come to a place of saving faith. You've experienced forgiveness of your sins and one day eternal life because of what Jesus Christ did on the cross for you and what he secured for you through his resurrection. Let's pray this morning. Father, we thank you again for all that you've done. God, I pray that now uh, we, we enter into this time of response. God, I pray that you'll help us, God, to know how to respond to what you're asking us to do in this moment. God, for the people in the room that have a relationship with you, I say thank you. And we celebrate with, with all gratitude what you've done on our behalf. God, for the person in this room who doesn't have a relationship with you, God, I pray that this morning that they'd come to that place where they trust you as Lord and Savior. God, that they would not walk out of these doors without settling 
this matter with you without coming to a conclusion and having an answer to who is Jesus Christ. So God, we pray all of this in your name. Amen.